Hi, and thanks for joining us on this edition of Religion Unplugged. I'm going to be guest hosting today's edition and two subsequent editions of the podcast. My name is Ryan Anderson. I'm the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and today I'm joined by my EBPC colleague, uh, Mary Hassan. Uh, Mary's a fellow here at EBPC where she focuses her time in the Catholic Studies program. Uh, she leads the Catholic Women's Forum and she uh, runs our Person and Identity Project, which is a project devoted to gender ideology and how to correctly understand um, the human person and our uh, human identity. Uh, what we want to do uh, today and then in two subsequent podcasts is explore different aspects of the Equality Act. Um, the Equality Act last month was passed out of the House of Representatives and then um, there was a hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee where Mary testified for the, uh, the minority party, even though it's technically a 50-50 split. It wasn't a 50-50 distribution of the hearing. Um, so today we're going to hear from Mary about what are some of the concerns with the Equality Act how we should be thinking about this as faithful citizens, uh, concerned both about religious liberty and about other aspects of the common good, how the Equality Act would impact women, girls, children, religious institutions, et cetera, et cetera. So let me just start, Mary, by saying, one, thank you. Uh, thanks for um, joining us on this. And then two, what was it like testifying? Uh, maybe we'll we'll start there and we'll back into the uh, e Equality Act. I imagine most of our viewers and listeners uh, haven't ever testified before a Senate committee before. So what was the experience like? Well, thank you, Ryan. And I'm delighted to be on this podcast. Uh, it was interesting partly because we're still in the age of COVID. And so I was testifying virtually. There was only one witness who testified sort of real live was actually in the hearing room. And that was Abigail Schreier, who was also a, uh, a GOP witness. But it was interesting because I could really see the difference um, between not just the two parties, but the members and some of them, particularly the ones with legal backgrounds, I thought were really on top of the details. They knew exactly where they wanted to go, what, what kinds of facts and concerns that they wanted to bring out. Whereas um, it, I thought there was more of an emphasis on presenting sort of sympathetic figures from the other side. So it was almost like two conversations were going on that were talking past each other a little bit, but uh, I, it's all about making the record and, and getting those facts out there. Yeah. And so, I mean, for the, the, the members that had the legal background, kind of what are the big concerns? None of us are in favor of unjust discrimination. And so the way that the Equality Act is presented is to say, look, this would ban discrimination. And therefore, if you're against the Equality Act, that must mean you're in favor of discrimination. I imagine that's not true for you. I know it's not true for me. Um, so, so what is the concern? Like, What's the act all about? And why should we be concerned? Well, you put your finger on one of the problematic things. It's sort of the framing of this, that because the Equality Act brings in these new categories of sexual orientation and gender identity and, and defines sex to include those categories, and is specifically targeting unlawful discrimination, it, it automatically is portraying that anyone who believes that there's biological difference between males and females that needs to be respected under the law, but both in our, our public discourse and, and our uh, religious ministries, anyone who believes that marriage is between a male and a female is automatically uh, cast by the framing of this bill as someone who is 
favoring discrimination, in other words, per se. And I would reiterate what you're you just said your opening comments, because this was a theme that was highlighted throughout by both sides throughout the hearing. And that's that nobody is in favor of unjust discrimination. Nobody wants to see people targeted or harmed or injured and and limited in any significant way. That's on our hearts, certainly as religious believers. But I think the problem here is that this act is very one-sided. So it seems to approach civil rights as a winner-take-all endeavor. And it really puts its thumb on the scale or puts the weight of government on the side of those who are promoting an ideology about the person and frames everything else as discrimination, bigotry, illegal. And and so that's that initial framing is really problematic. There is very little room to actually have a discussion. So the natural concerns then are, uh, is there room? Does, this, does the Equality Act leave room for religious believers, people who have um, a, a strong belief, whether based in science or, or in religion, that the human person has meaning, it means something to be male and female, and that the law should respect that difference and should allow those who believe to continue to be part of, of the culture and, and serving in their ministries and things, and even with those beliefs that they should be free to have those. That, that was very much a, a concern, and we can talk about that substantively in just a minute. But I, I think also there was a, a great concern over the impact of this bill on women and girls because one of the effects of the Equality Act is that it um, it overrides the significance of biological sex and elevates or, or privileges, I think, the concept of gender identity and that that's, that's your golden ticket to get into facilities, locker rooms, sports teams and whatever. It's all about gender identity, which is regardless of sex. So the fear is that you're going to have males, for example, who are identifying as women or girls who then are going to have a right under the Equality Act to access women's restrooms, locker rooms, their sports teams, their uh, women-only spaces, whether it's a, a women's shelter or a support group for sexual assault survivors, or, or specific opportunity-based um, programs that, for example, would, would serve to encourage women's participation in STEM programs, that all of those go by the board. And so that was, that was probably the other main focus, the religious liberty angle, and then the concern about women and girls, their safety, privacy, and opportunity. And so what does that mean in terms of, if I'm a high school student, um, a male, and I identify as a girl, would I now have a civil right to go to the women's bathroom, locker room, compete on the women's sports teams? And if so, um, what do I have to do to prove that I identify as a girl? Like Under the law, what, what, what does it actually say on this? Yeah, so good point. Um, that was one of the questions that came up at the hearing. And the Equality Act specifically states that access to spaces like locker rooms, facilities, restrooms, things like that, shall be determined on the basis of gender identity. Gender identity is defined to include your uh, your mannerisms, your um, appearance, your identification with a particular gender. But there's no requirement in there that you 
prove in any way that you are, um, that even that this gender identity is something that is persistent or longstanding. It's not even that. And certainly there's no requirement that a male, for example, have gone through surgery to uh, modify his body parts or or even hormonal treatment or anything. Not that that changes the fact that he's still a male, but that expectation, I think, has been part of some people's willingness to say, well, what difference does it really make, you know, if this person has had surgery and all these things. But under the, under the Equality Act, it doesn't matter. It's all self-defined. It's his self-declared gender identity. Right. And no one can contest that. So there's no way to challenge that unless someone engages in a specific criminal activity. But right away, you're putting women at risk. You're saying that women's privacy doesn't matter. Our ability to get changed or, or just, just have privacy to attend to women's things. Our bodies are different. Mm -hmm. That We're not free to say we need a, a female-only space here. That any male, he could be dressed like you look like you and call himself a woman and would have a right under the law to mm. access those facilities. And we as females would have no right to say, you don't belong here. And so that's, that's a huge sticking point. A lot of the conversation was around uh, girls sports and things and depriving girls of opportunity. But I, I really think the, the question for females is, is much deeper. It really just eliminates our ability to say, uh, we want single sex spaces and over, you know, the course of history and time. And we know it's important for women to have that, to have that privacy and that safety. You know, I think I just saw um, a news story yesterday saying it was like maybe 251 men in the California prison system have requested to be transferred to women's. I mean, did you see this? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I it doesn't take a crystal ball to predict what the outcome is going to be. And it's hugely unfair. It's an injustice mm -hmm. to those female inmates to now have men in their prisons. I mean, that, this just strikes me as something that should be utterly obvious. And Right. It's not like they can choose to go to a different facility. Right. You know, whereas if your gym has maybe you've got a couple of males who are identifying as female and, and, and you feel threatened, fine, join a different gym. See if you, you know, you find some privacy there. Women in prisons have no such freedom. They are, they are very vulnerable. And this is not an aberration, Ryan. I mean, I think one of the important things to realize is that this, we're already seeing this happen, that very same phenomenon of male prisoners, a lot of male sex offenders who, once they're incarcerated, start identifying as female. That's happened in Canada. That's happened in the UK. We're seeing it here. It's, it's almost predictable. And yet, this is the kind of thing where the Equality Act leaves no room for someone's better judgment to say, wait a minute, this, this is not fair, this is not safe, this violates the rights of, of the females who are put at risk here. So this is a, a, an interesting question that I've never heard um, anyone on the left answer satisfactorily. So I, I wonder if you've heard a satisfactory answer, but the left says that gender is fluid and that it's non-binary. It exists along a spectrum. Gender exists along a spectrum so that you could be non-binary. Someone could identify as non-binary. But that gender is also fluid so that, you know, what you identify as today might be different than how you identify tomorrow. So if you um, are gender fluid and or you're gender non-binary, 
under this the Equality Act, what civil right would you have in terms of which prison, which bathroom, which locker room? I mean, because so if I identified as gender non-binary, can I use both or neither? If I identify as gender fluid, is it like male jail today and female jail? To, like, how do, how does the left even think that a system that is built on the sex binary, which is an objective reality of the sexual binary, how do they then map on, you know, a self-declared identity, which is both non-binary and fluid? How do they think this works in practice? You know, I, I really don't see any attempt by those who are who are pushing the Equality Act to resolve those contradictions. Mm. And so but you haven't seen it either. Yeah. There are a lot of built-in contradictions, inherent contradictions in both the definitions they use, the the um, the practices that would result from this, and yet that doesn't seem to matter. And it, it's interesting too, because one of the things that came up at the hearing was there, the witnesses on the other side said numerous times that, no, the Equality Act was not going to be any threat to women. No, it's not going to erase religious freedoms. And they spoke in these very global general terms. And yet those assertions were defied by the very language of the Equality Act. So that was that was kind of striking that they're willing to to argue something that's directly contradicted by right. the language of the bill. And then we do see these these patterns and, and practices, because that was another assertion that the um, the head of the human rights campaign made during the hearing. He said, well, many states have these provisions of protecting sexual orientation and gender identity. And we're not seeing any wholesale violation of people's religious freedom or any threats to women. And one, that's just not true in absolute terms. We are seeing things just like the whole prison phenomenon in California. But in many of those states, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is still available to right. people as a defense, whereas under the Equality Act, someone who is a religious believer who does not accept the idea of gender fluidity and, and things like that, no longer can use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as a, a defense, as, as a way to, to shield or, or to create space for them to be free to live out their beliefs. So that's a huge difference between what might be happening in some states. But, but even there, I'd contest the, the general fact because we have all these lawsuits by individuals, by, by girls, by parents, by students, by proprietors who are finding that their religious liberty or their privacy um, or their parental rights are being infringed by these statutes. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. We, we, we've seen the Connecticut athletes losing track championship races to boys identifying as girls. We've seen the Alaska, you know, battered women's shelter that had to have a man who identified as a woman um, stay the night there. We've seen, you know, California, the prisons. So it's a really good point to say that when they say, oh, we have these laws at the state level and there aren't problems, like, I mean, just do a simple Google News search and you can see the problems. But then the second point you made is also really good that like, at the state level, there is a state Religious Freedom Restoration Act in many of these um, jurisdictions that at least provides some limiting factor. The Federal Equality Act um, is would be the first piece of legislation if it became law to explicitly exempt itself from the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so let's say a little bit more about the religious liberty, because I think you know the podcast is Religion Unplugged, and so it's good to talk about the religious liberty, but, but I think it's 
it was important that we actually hit on some of the concerns to privacy and safety and fairness for female sports, because part of being a faithful citizen isn't just, you know, protecting your own turf and saying, you know, I want religious freedom and I don't care about the common good. I mean, part of being a faithful citizen is to say that, you know, I want just laws. There's a difference between an unjust law and a just law. The Equality Act would be an unjust law because of the way it would harm women, because of the way it would impact female privacy, female safety, fairness uh, for female athletes. And so, so I think it's important that, you know, we started with some of those concerns. Right. It would also be a nightmare for re religious liberty. So tell us more about that. Yeah. So one thing to clarify, um, when I'm talking about on the state level that there are defenses to the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, but what I mean by that are state level, because yep. the Religious Freedom Restoration Act does not apply to the states. But part of the negotiation in many of these states, when they were proposing anti-discrimination laws based on sexual orientation and gender identity, was this... this um, attempt to work together to recognize that, okay, if we want to provide those protections, we still need to have a mechanism that ensures that religious believers are free to, to live their faith, to carry out their faith uh, in their daily activities, in their ministries, in their expressing their beliefs. And so those state level protections uh, were part of that calculation. And that's what has protected in many cases or provided a vehicle for people to to sue, to defend their interests, along with generally First Amendment freedoms. But that's that's a harder case to gain protection under. So so that's that's the state issue. But what's happening with the Equality Act is that it very explicitly says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, in other words, the, the federal bipartisan bill that was passed back in the 90s, signed by Bill Clinton, that was really drew people together uh, from a, a common sense of saying, you know, religion and religious freedom is foundational to who we are. And we want to make sure that that's protected, that people of faith are not, um, are, are free to, to live their faith out without the government burdening the expression of their religious beliefs without some really compelling justification. And that's, that's part of the language of the Religious Freedom Act. It, it doesn't mean that anyone who feels um, that the law is, is limiting their religious freedom automatically wins. It means that they can bring a case and, and say to the court, look, my religious freedom is being burdened and the court engages in a balancing act. It says, okay, there's a burden here, but is there a compelling interest on the part of the government? Is there a justification? And if there's a justification, have they chosen the most targeted means, the tailored means? So we're not uh, painting with too broad a brush. We're not unnecessarily burdening these religious beliefs. And so it's it's very much a, um, a balancing act, but the Equality Act says, as far as claims under the Equality Act, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is not available. So it's not like it repeals it. It doesn't repeal the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was one sort of misdirection that came up in the hearing saying, well, it doesn't repeal it. No, it doesn't repeal it. It just says it's completely unavailable to you. It exempts itself from it, yeah. So that's hugely significant. And then the other, the other thing that affects religious freedom, but also free speech and other, other rights, is that the Equality Act specifically says, it, it sort of attempts to validate itself. It says that this Equality Act is meant to further a compelling government interest right. and is narrowly tailored. So it, it, 
uses the very language that courts would use in engaging in that balancing test. And, and I see it as a way of um, Congress trying to elbow the courts out and saying, we'll take care of this. We don't, yeah. we don't need you to, to really scrutinize what's going on here and weigh the burden versus the, the compelling interest. They're saying, out of here, you know, we're, we're just gonna decide that question. We're, we're, we're declaring our own act of legislation to be compelling and narrowly tailored. We don't need you to actually do the judicial review of, of that. So, so we just have a couple minutes left. What would the actual kind of like bottom line consequences be? What would this mean for example, like a Catholic school, a Catholic hospital, an evangelical shelter, an evangelical baker, florist, photographer, like what would be the um, bottom line consequences for people of faith who want to live out their faith at charities, at schools, at hospitals, and in the workplace? Yeah, all of those, everything you mentioned is suddenly at risk of being harassed, of being subject to, to regulation, because the other thing that the act does, besides saying that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is, is not available, uh, is it expands the notion of what's a public accommodation, that typically under civil rights law, um, the law regulated someone who was a public accommodation, a restaurant, a stadium, uh, things like that. The theater, yeah. Right, but what this does is it broadens that category to include individuals, to include establishments that are simply quote public gatherings and it's hard to imagine anything that a religious organization does that couldn't be, be somehow brought into that mm -hmm. and then the other thing it does besides um, expanding this idea of public accommodations is that it also says that if um, you're engaged in a program where government funds are flowing to you so for example a catholic school an urban catholic school that serves low-income children who may be receiving subsidized federal lunches, you know, subsidized by the federal government through the, the federal school lunch program. That's enough to bring that school under the Equality Act. In other words, to put them at risk of a charge of discriminating simply because they're being true to their mission. They're living out their Catholic faith and what they're teaching and what they're, you know, who they're employing, how they're, how they're engaging and producing, you know, educating kids. So all of that is, it comes under this um, just broad sweeping bill. Yeah. So even people who are not particularly concerned about putting in these new categories under sex discrimination, sexual orientation and gender identity, even if that didn't bother you, I would think anyone who's concerned about the power of the government to intrude into the ongoing business, so to speak, or, or community life of people of faith ought to be concerned about this just sweeping expansion of public accommodations. And yeah. it, it gives the government a tremendous amount of power. Yeah. When you mentioned the school lunches, it made me start thinking again about children. And before we wrap up, we should say something about what this would mean kind of um, uh, for children in medicine. Um, and, and just to preface that, I mean, for, for people who aren't familiar with the Equality Act, you know, this goes back to right where we started. It doesn't distinguish between unjust discrimination and then reasonable disagreements. Um, so like in the healthcare context, we don't know um, of any 
a hospital or healthcare clinic that has refused to treat someone for COVID because they identify as LGBT. But if that were to ever happen, you and I would be the first two people condemning it. That's unjust discrimination. And thank God it hasn't happened. But the Equality Act would say, for example, that um, if you were a hospital or a healthcare clinic or a professional who, if you're a surgeon, for example, would perform a double mastectomy in the case of breast cancer, you'd also have to offer it, cover it on your healthcare plan, perform it in the case of sex reassignment, right? And so that's a reasonable disagreement as to whether or not, you know, sex reassignment procedures are good medicine. Equality Act treats it as discrimination. What does this mean for kids? When you write that ideology into the law, what does this mean for children struggling with gender dysphoria? I think, unfortunately, it forecloses their options to pursue different ways of finding healing and, and peace. Mm -hmm. So the Equality Act specifically lists, quote, conversion therapy as an example of discrimination without defining that. It's a very broad brush that includes in other formulations I've seen, they include talk therapy, they include anyone who would who would simply ask a child who, let's say you have a, a girl who's who all of a sudden starts identifying as a boy, who would ask the question why? You know, yep. what's what's behind this and trying to help unpack those feelings and help them resolve those feelings, that all of those things are all of a sudden going to be signs of discrimination on the basis of gender identity. And similarly, the practitioner, the um, surgeon, let's say, or the internist who looks at the practice of medicine and sees this tremendous pressure to affirm children's identities when they express a, a transgender identity, and not just affirm it, but to medicalize the treatment of it. So providing hormones, providing surgeries, that physician is not going to be free to even use their best medical judgment. If mm. they provide hormones to, to women for some reason, then they have to provide them to the teenage boy who says he identifies as a woman. Right. It, to do otherwise is going to be discriminatory on the basis of gender identity or the surgeon who says, yes, I, I do double mastectomies on women who, are, who have cancer and, and we do reconstruction. If the teenage girl who is identifying as male comes to his office and says, I want a double mastectomy, yeah. then that physician is going to be constrained by the Equality Act from even using his own best judgment. Right. But it also creates a threat for parents because parents are going to be constrained from saying to their to their child, no, you know, that's that's not healthy. That's not good. But but all of this is sweeps under the big umbrella. And, uh, you know, we've hardly touched on it, Ryan, but there is so much to the problematic aspects of this Equality Act. And it, it really should give people pause, you know, to have this, this mammoth bill that that does so much in such a sweeping fashion uh, with, again, sort of a, a winner takes all mentality. Yeah. Well, I mean, and just, I mean, this is a perfect, you know, example to kind of wrap up on because the example you just gave, think of all of the people who would be harmed by the Equality Act. Orthodox believing, you know, Jews, Catholics, evangelicals, Latter-day Saints, Muslims, anyone who believes that we're created male and female and that we shouldn't be attempting to reassign sex, their ability to be medical professionals is going to be at risk here people who aren't particularly religious, but simply think it's bad medicine, right. right? You could be secular and have, you know, in your best medical judgment, it's a bad idea to block puberty or to administer cross-sex hormones. They're going to be threatened. Mm -hmm. Parental authority, parental rights is going to be threatened. 
And then, you know, I think the person, you know, who would be harmed the most are those children themselves, right? So, so the example we just gave, you have, you know, religious liberty concerns, you have medical conscience concerns, you have parental authority concerns, and you simply have like the well-being of children concerns. Yeah. And to my mind, the, the blase way in which so many progressive politicians have ignored all of those concerns and said, look, I'm in favor of equality, I'm against discrimination, and I'm not willing to even think about whether or not this bill is crafted correctly um, is really disturbing. I think that's it's a sign of of the times, the the cancel culture that people are unwilling to unpack and just really dig down and say, what's in this? What's good? What what can we keep? What's not? Everyone's afraid of being labeled a bigot, a discriminator. And unfortunately, passing the Equality Act is going to make that worse. We can't address it now and try to to correct the problems. It bodes ill for the future. Yep. So actually, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap up. What, what advice do you have for our audience today? You know, what, what closing words of wisdom do you want to leave us with? So I'd say two things. You know, one, that people need to be engaged, that this is not a time to sit on the sidelines because we're talking about not just legislation, but an ideology and, and a belief system that really flies in the face of, of reality and the, the scientific fact that we're created male and female. So that means call your legislators. It means talk to your children. It means talk to your neighbors. It means being willing to just stand up and speak the truth. And that's a scary thing in today's culture. But I've found that when one person stands up and says, you know, I think there really are enduring differences between males and females and the law ought to take that into account. Other people will start nodding their heads. You know, there's there are many more people who who believe the same thing. And we need to have the courage of our convictions and inspire others in that regard. Perfect. Well, thank you for for joining me today. And thank you for our audience for listening in. Thank you. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was guest hosted by Ryan Anderson, president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and it was edited and produced by Rich Rosel. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or The Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at ReligionMag. <laughs>